Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Slate Political Gabfest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by MSNBC. For the past 40 years, Chris Matthews has lived and breathed American politics. Chris explores today's issues with passion, compassion, and persistence nonstop. Watch him on Hardball with Chris Matthews, weeknights at 7 Eastern, only on MSNBC. And by Credit Karma, don't pay for your credit score. With Credit Karma, you can see your credit score right now absolutely free. Just text GABFEST to 89800 to download the free Credit Karma app and get started. Again, text the word GABFEST to 89800. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 20th, 2015, the I'm Not Throwing Away My Shot edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of Face the Nation is with me. Hello, John in Washington. Hey. Hello, David. John's voice is going to be awesome today. He's he's going to embody male vocal fry. Can you embody it for one second? Sure. Well, yeah. I keep trying to want to clear my throat, but I won't. I'll just own it. Yeah. So oh, now my God. I'm it is it. sexy. Yeah. It is super sexy. We should Lauren Bacall. The, the fans of Face the Nation are just... They're, beating we, up with sweat we and not because should. they're in a 95 degree studio uh we we should come up with something for me to narrate because this is gonna run out this is gonna be <laughs> awesome uh that other voice you heard emily bazelon of the new york times magazine hello emily from new haven hello hello uh any hey stu- i want to say that you said the title of the show with the wrong cadence i did that on purpose okay do you want me to do, i can do it i know i it was kind of a joke that's Wait, fine. I missed the joke <laughs> again. He said I, I, emphasize, I emphasize my shot rather than my shot. Right. Was that he what you're talking it, about? I'm not giving away my shot. I'm not throwing wrong. away. Also, by throwing the way, it's, away. Not, it's not giving away. <laughs> I had That's the wrong word. Not. That's worse. <laughs> yes. <more> yes. <laughs> on, on this week's Gabfest, <laughs> oh, we will... Um, we will <laughs> All the Hamilton fans are having <laughs> the to do the equivalent of like, like, <laughs> rinsing out their brows. Hands over their ears. They're like, oh, man. Chalkboard. Chalkboard fingers. <laughs> yes, exactly. Let's go chew on some <laughs> aluminum foil. Uh, we may this... be fumbling things, but we have a lot of love to give that show. So hang in there. On this week's Gabfest, we will um, replay our discussion uh, about the Paris attack from our live Superfest on Monday night. That'll be our first topic. Then the Supreme Court has taken its biggest abortion case in many, many years. Emily will give us some learning about that, some schooling. And then Hamilton on Broadway, everyone is talking about it. What does it teach us about modern American politics? And just let's just talk about how awesome it is. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, Emily and I will each ask John one question about what it was like to moderate the Democratic debate. Mm. John has to answer it, um, but it won't be like truth or dare. It'll be fine. Uh, if you are not yet a Slate Plus member, me- member or member, 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 or member if you're you can, a member, it costs more. You can get it by going to slate.com slash plus. And let me just do, before we get to the meat of the show, a quick plug. The Message, which is a great panoply podcast, which is a radio drama, kind of a sci-fi, spooky, old-timey radio drama that uh, panoply has been airing. It's completely gripping. I strongly advise you to go listen to it. It is, it's very, it's unlike almost any podcast you've heard. It's a story told in serial, but it's a fictional story, although it pretends to be non-fictional, but it's in like the war of the worlds kind of way. It, it's wonderful. I commend it to you. Go listen to the Ooh, message. It sounds like one of those old radio dramas I got to listen to in fifth grade. Yeah, it is. We had listening lessons. It is. And it was great, like, you know, fully, like Orson fully artist. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> That's why I said War of the Worlds. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, a little slow today, as wow. I've already shown. Uh, we are we are orbiting the tiniest cul-de-sac. Okay. On Monday night, the Slate Political Gab Fest, that's us, joined the Culture Gab Fest and hang up and listen for a live super fest <laughs> at Town Hall on Broadway. Thank you for the sound effect, John. 
Uh, it was a really great evening. Uh, it included um, excellent Culture Fest discussions and excellent Hang Up and Listen discussions. And some we played uh, podcast Family Feud. I think the Culture Fest show this week is the is the whole show that we did. Um, and also John and Dana Stevens interviewed two of the stars of Hamilton, which we'll talk more about later. But we our segment of the show was a conversation about the Paris attacks and in the context of American, particularly presidential politics. And we we listened to it. I, we think, obviously, events have moved quite a lot, but the discussion we had pretty much holds up. So we're just going to air that discussion. So listen away. We'll be back in a minute. Let's begin. You may have seen these podcasters on such previous programs as Face the Nation, The New York Times Magazine, and The National Zoo's 10 Most Wanted List. Please welcome John Dickerson, Emily Bazelon, and David Plotz, The Politics Gap Fest. Such a blunder sometimes it makes me wonder why I even bring the thunder. So we're gonna start with an immediate shift. You may want to re-record your intro, Dan. Because we're not we're not talking about the democratic debate. Do you well, want a little bit? We're not not talking about it. It's too late, man. It's already on tape. Uh well do it live. Okay. Um we, we, we ought to talk about the Democratic debate because let's just pause and quell for a minute about John. It is who did an amazing job with it. And if he will be doing a, uh, a Republican debate in, on Valentine's Day, so set your date clock for that. And then if there's any justice in the world in October, he'll be doing a general election debate. I think that. <laughs> From my mouth to God's ears. Okay. We think. We think. John's blushing, guys. <clears throat> Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we, we, we're, we're going to talk about a very serious subject today. I think, um, you know, the attacks in Paris uh, were a target on the pleasure centers of the world. It was more than Mumbai, more than the Boston Marathon, more than Madrid, more than London. I think these attacks uh, have gripped the world and enraged uh, Americans and Europeans certainly more than anything since 9-11. So uh, we're gonna talk, we're gonna try to merge our expertises here. So we're gonna try to talk about the, the, these attacks in the context of Ameri the American presidency and American presidential election um, and what they will mean for the election. So, John, let's just start with you, which is that at the debate, this, you, you opened this Democratic debate by having the candidates talk about it, um, but it in no sense dominated the debate because the debate was, in, it was about economics. Why, why was it, I think, it, it, seemed, it felt to me watching it that it was really relatively easy for the candidates to move off of it, that they didn't want to linger on it, they didn't circle back to it. Why is this attack, which is, I think, hitting people so deeply emotionally, um, did it not grip them as politicians? Well, I think it gripped them all. Um, and they certainly f felt the emotion of it. I think that to the extent that, they, that everybody who's not named Hillary Clinton wants to um, talk about the differences and what distinguishes them from Hillary Clinton, it's harder on foreign policy. I mean, they tried, and Bernie Sanders tried to link her vote on the, the uh, invasion into Iraq directly to the growth of ISIS. And then Martin O'Malley kept saying that um, it was the lack of vision. It was a little bit more oblique, but it was the, the lack of vision from the State Department and the administration that led to this. But that isn't their comfort zone. Um, Bernie Sanders was much more powerful and animated when drawing contrast with her on Wall Street. So was Martin O'Malley on both the minimum wage and Wall Street. So I think they felt tentative in that opening. I think that there is some complexity in both uh, the Obama administration handling of ISIS. Uh, the president has admitted he missed it. Um, she has admitted that she missed the growth of ISIS. And the president had, in an interview just the day before these attacks, said that the United States had both geographically limited ISIS's growth and also limited its growth in strength. And that, the geographical... Um, Zero out of two ain't bad. So that so that's not good, and, and obviously also famously he referred to it as the JV in an interview with David Remnick. 
in a poll we did right before the debate, 72% of the country thinks that the fight against ISIS is going poorly. 31% think he's handling that issue well. So this was a bad, uh, this was not a good issue for Hillary Clinton because, and as you heard from her answers, she doesn't have a great answer. Her best answer is, I was right about Syria and the president didn't listen to me, which is not something she wants to so, say too much. Emily, uh, the Republican candidates as they are thinking about their themes for the general election, so far it's just like, we're really angry and Obama is terrible and Hillary Clinton is more Obama. And it's, there's just a lot of America needs to be back, immigration. There hasn't been a clarifying theme that you felt that they could run in a general election on. Is, do you think that this is going to become that theme? Is ISIS, is the war on terror, as it was in 2004, uh, going to uh, grab the Republican electorate and then maybe the whole country enough that that becomes the theme for the election? I mean, it sure beats going after Obamacare for the 85th time. It feels new. And yet, of course, it's also old because it brings up their vulnerability uh, when President Bush was in office and their handling of the war on terror and the invasion of Iraq. However, these are new candidates and they're not linked to Bush the way Hillary is linked to Obama. So, yes, I think this is a good issue for them. And it has to do with safety and people's sense of this um, overwhelming global insecurity and threat. And that's generally a good issue for Republicans. Wait, John, just to frame it. So so John McCain, referring back to Donald Trump, said that uh, I think when you look at the dimensions of this tragedy, most Republicans' voters will not be satisfied with will bomb the shit out of them. Talking about, do you think... I'm not that, sure that, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, John McCain... Well, I mean, it's a human reaction. It's, it's the reaction the French had and are currently in the middle of doing. So the French, I don't know how many, what are, we're up to now, but as of this morning, they had bombed 20 targets in Raqqa in Syria, which is the... Um, the headquarters of ISIS. And so the question is, if they were bombing 20 today, why wasn't somebody bombing 20, those 20 the day before? And the question is whether the U.S. military ha- has a lot of sites picked out. Um, but the problem is that ISIS is smart when they have their, their top leaders are surrounded by civilians. And so the military um, people who are watching the bad guys in ISIS walk around because they can do that can't take the shot because there's a there's basically a zero tolerance policy for attacks if you know that there's going to be civilian casualties the question is whether the, what the french level of tolerance is on that and or and or whether this these bombings are sort of um, cross theater. that line. Well, do they cross that line, or are they just like we're just going to show that we're retaliating? How effective that are they? That's an interesting question. But to your original one, in the in the political sense, first of all, just let's talk about why this has the people in the intelligence community so spooked. So ISIS took down so, the first, so to speak. So, so the ISIS took down the first planes since Lockerbie. That's a big deal, and now they have. Um, Moved The French, since the Charlie Hebdo attacks, French intelligence has been on high alert. And so here you had a highly sophisticated in six different locations, long planned, planned in, in, in Iraq and Syria, and carried out over six different locations. That's incredible, an incredible level of planning and detail that they didn't necessarily know that ISIS had. The notion that ISIS was just trying to build a caliphate, they've obviously now expanded, and they have what the intelligence communities call attack capability. What's frightening to the intelligence people is that the attack capability can manifest itself now in the Sinai, in France, and in possibly other places where ISIS has um, operatives, which would include in the United States. So what this is is, is an attack that was horrific in its uh, car- being carried out in France, but it also suggests potential that goes way beyond what they thought they could do. And that's what has everybody so freaked out. Now, to your, finally, to your point about politics. You could, argue one th- you could argue two ways. One, this calls for somebody who understands the nuances of the relationship between Syria and Iraq um, and Saudi Arabia and Europe and all of, and the migrants and, you know, really needs to understand the contours of the world. Um, and then you experience. could also, well, yes, ex- experience or understanding because Marco Rubio has understanding and not much experience. I mean, in an executive capacity, I mean. Um, so... That's one route. The other route is the Donald Trump route. Um, and we've seen, certainly in the past, um, uh, Bill Clinton has a, a phrase that strong and wrong is better than, I can't remember what the alternative is, but um, <laughs> but you get the point. Right That's the point. Yeah. yeah. Well, right. Emily, that Emily, is the just point. So, switching to sort of the post-9-11 response. So, so it's like Marion Haste, repent at leisure. 
it, after 9-11, there was this immediate, very fast response in the United States on all sorts of things, um, whether it was eavesdropping, torture, invading countries. Um, yeah. uh, what are the things that we're going to mess up this time by, by going too fast? Huh. Well, I mean, the surveillance capabilities are already in place. And so I think the, the worst thing we could do right now is alienate our own Muslim population, which is not alienated, which is very integrated. We don't have these huge populations of disaffected, incredibly poor um, Muslims in this country. And that seems to me like it's our greatest strength. It, it wasn't an accident that this happened in France, right? Because there is much more of a sense of discontent and a breeding ground than we have here. And that seems like the most important thing is to hold on to the goodwill of Muslims in America. You're about to say, John? No, no. I'm sorry. So, so what we've already seen, I mean, we've, we've already seen more. example one, which is that as of today, I think 13 governors have now said, we don't want refugees, these Syrian refugees, uh, which, which is like, if you think about it, it's probably just about the worst idea you can come up with. But on the other hand, it obviously gets it, gets it people, people are scared, and it's easy to pander to that fear. So what could President Obama or what could Democratic candidates or even Republican candidates who, didn't, who wanted to, to sort of tamp down that fear and make people think more expansively or big-heartedly do to actually change pe how people think? Or is it, is it not worth trying to fight with people's profound emotions about this? I think you, the latter. I think the latter, too. I think that's instinctual. And the other thing is that it's... To have one person. Wait, out so of you all guys, those... what, you guys think that you sh that no, you should just let. If people say we don't want refugees, you're like, okay, well, don't take refugees, and don't worry about the alienations causing. If people say like we want to bomb because that'll make us feel better, you bomb. Like, what, what point do what point do do is it the responsibility of the the adults, the sober-minded adults, to to push back against the Trumpism. Well, there are counterexamples out there. The governor of Connecticut, my adopted state, said, yes, we do want these refugees. So I think having people take a different tack and stand for a different set of values is important right now. But I'm not sure you can tell people who are scared that one terrorist is going to get through that they're wrong. Because well, yeah, right. But they're totally wrong. But they're, they're not totally, wrong. How they are, are they wrong? wrong? They're not they, wrong they, about the possibility Well, they weren't wrong about that. France. You know, what, to me, what's amazing about this is that we've been, what is it, 14 years since 9-11? Is that right? 14 yes. years since 9-11. This country, the, the amount of terrorism that's taken place is just tiny. Well, we've, invaded, we've invaded three countries. We've bombed a whole lot of other ones. We, you know, half the Muslim world is really unhappy with us. And yet... There's, there's essentially no terrorism here. And even if there were an attack, it would be like, okay, there's an attack. They, like, how Not can necessarily. We, how it would depend we, on what the nature of that I attack was. I don't think so. so. What do you mean, what the nature of that attack You was? remember what? what the public opinion did when the beheadings happened, right? The, the, so there, was a, there were questions about whether there should be boots on the ground in Syria because the Assad had gassed his own people. You remember the red line and the vote the president was going to take in Congress. And... The majority of the country overwhelmingly didn't want to have any troops at all have to do anything with Syria. So the president withdrew his effort in Congress, and it um, came to that messy conclusion where, the, where Putin had to, to move in. Um, then there were the beheadings. And then you asked people, would you um, put military, American military troops in Iraq and Syria to go after ISIS? And there was a va vast majority opinion in support of that. Public opinion, when they saw the beheadings, like switched completely reversed. Um, so I think that public opinion is at play here. And so politicians... Wait, but so is the answer wait it out or, or pander to that public opinion? Because the, I, the, I don't think anybody I, who thinks rationally about it thinks we should put 200,000 troops into, into Syria to fight ISIS right now. Well, fair enough. But um, I think to the extent that politicians in an election year have occasionally pandered, I think that's the, <laughs> the route they may, they may right. travel yet again. Um, do but, you think but we having, should do nothing that we're currently I, doing? I think we should do nothing. Yes. So and ISIS grows and becomes and because they're not, also going to inspire a lot of people problem. now. Not really our problem. Well, so that's probably not the case. So they want. I mean, so they're not just. I mean, they are. They are growing up in um, disaffected neighborhoods. But I mean, there is a there is an ideology at the center of, of and the claims. Right. And I don't. And I think the the belief there is a belief that at, that we can take action which will effectively reverse that. Well, that's ideology. a separate. That's I don't think right. that's any a separate options question. on the table do that. Well, that's a separate then, question. It doesn't mean it's not a problem. I mean, whether the whether the methods to fix it 
are uh, available in a way that isn't incredibly messy or isn't so big that nobody would support it. Or counterproductive. Or counterproductive. That's all maybe possibly true, but the problem still exists. That's the last word. We've been getting the hook. Thank you, guys. Thank you, the Political Gap Fest. Give them a hand. The Gap Fest is sponsored today by Stamps.com. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. The traffic, the parking, packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts and packages of unusual size and shape and significant number. So what can you do? Use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you would do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it and have your mail carrier pick it up. It is easy and it's convenient. And there's a special offer, of course. If you use our promo code GABFEST, you can get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. The Supreme Court this week took its uh, biggest abortion case in years, Whole Women's Health versus Cole, which challenges a restrictive Texas law passed in 2013, the one that, that Wendy Davis famously tried to filibuster, or did filibuster, ostensibly designed to raise safety standards for abortion providers. The law mandated all kinds of expensive, unnecessary, onerous building modifications for abortion clinics on the grounds that they were surgical facilities that need such improvements as extremely wide corridors. It also imposed the requirement that any doctor providing abortions in Texas need to have admitting privileges at a hospital nearby the clinic. These regulations, this law as written, would effectively cut the number of abortion clinics in Texas from 40. It's already gone down to 20 because of some of the law going to effect, and it would cut it down to 10, including uh, the remarkable fact there would be none west of San Antonio, meaning there was a there's a swath of Texas 600 miles wide that would have no abortion services. And they, one of the theories is that, oh, well, these people can go to New Mexico, a totally different state. Emily, talk about the case. What are the legal issues here, the main legal issues that caused the Supreme Court to grab this? This is a case that's really about access to abortion, right? So in addition to the stakes in Texas that you just laid out, there are other states that have laws like this, um, Mississippi among them, but there are sort of between five and ten states. Um, and there would be more states that would have laws like this if the Supreme Court was upheld Texas's statute. So what we're really talking about is whether states can shut down almost all or even in the case of Mississippi, all the abortion clinics in the state. And who's that really going to impact? It's going to impact poor women because middle class and wealthy women will figure out a way to get out of state to go to blue states. They'll travel. They'll have child care for their kids. So this is really it's a regional issue. And it's also um, about income level and disparity. The legal issue at stake is about Roe versus Wade, obviously, but even more important, it's about Casey, which is the 1990s decision in which the Supreme Court reaffirmed Roe versus Wade, but also changed it. And what Casey said was that the state can legislate about abortion in a way that um, tries to persuade women to change their minds about having an abortion. Um, and then Casey also talked about state regulations that are aimed at, or at least ostensibly aimed at, protecting the health of women. And Casey said, um, and this is an opinion, a kind of big, famous, triumvirate opinion by Justice O'Connor and Justice Souter and, crucially, Justice Kennedy. And what they said about regulations by the states designed to protect women's health was that they could be constitutional as long as they didn't pose an undue burden on women's constitutional right to an abortion. And there's very little, there's, there isn't very much more definition of what, what's an undue burden. I mean, the word undue is a very subjective word. The court did also use the phrase substantial obstacle. And in Casey, the regulation that was at issue had to do with providing accurate um, information about abortion patients. And so the court said, well, this is clearly has could have some benefit to women's health. So it's nowhere near a substantial obstacle or an undue burden, but left open the idea that other laws could be. And so then there have been other decisions, um, a few by the Supreme Court since then, but really a lot um, in the states and by the federal appeal 
appeals courts trying to interpret this phrase. And meanwhile, states, red states, have become much more aggressive in passing laws that restrict abortion since Republicans took over a whole lot of state houses in 2010. So the question is, you know, undue burden, substantial obstacle. If you are closing most or even all of the clinics in a state, that should easily meet the test of it's a big fat obstacle. And yet uh, there is concern. We really everyone thinks this case hinges on Justice Kennedy. And so one question is, you know, what did he really mean? And now that it's just him in this centrist position without O'Connor and Souter, will he change his mind in some way? Which way is he going to move? Is he going to move to the right or is he going to move to the left? Emily, what would happen? And there is no absolutely. uh, Let me just register. There's absolutely no evidence that this is the case. It is absolutely distinctly not the case. But what if it were the case that every abortion clinic in in the state of Texas were like Kermit Gosnell's clinic, or they were all filthy and you know filled with rats and there was sepsis everywhere? Would it still be an undue burden to shut them all in that case? Maybe not, right? I mean, so there's a big division among the appeals courts about evidence and whether it is a court's job to look at any evidence about the impact of these restrictions. So most of the appeals courts and most prominently Judge Posner on the Seventh Circuit have said, okay, let's look at the effects of these restrictions. Hmm, They're going to shut down almost all the abortion clinics in Wisconsin. That was the state he was reviewing. And let's look at the medical benefits, the ways in which they really protect women's health. Well, actually, there's zero benefit. Uh, You know, abortion has an incredibly low complication rate. So the notion that you have to create abortion clinics that are as if they were fully equipped surgical centers, super expensive, no evidence that um, helps women. And then the other thing at issue in this case is whether abortion providers, doctors have to have admitting privileges to a local hospital, which sounds like, sure, why shouldn't they, except that they can't get the admitting privileges often, especially from a religious hospital. And also, if you have complications from an abortion and you need to go to the hospital and to the ER, you don't need your abortion provider to admit you. Someone else can do it. So again, it's a ruse. If, however, there was evidence that clinics really were unsafe, then appellate court judges like Posner, who think that the evidence matters, could draw a different conclusion. Because remember, we're talking about states' abilities to pass laws. And so You know, usually when states pass public health regulations, it's just a low rational basis test. And in fact, the Fifth Circuit, which is the federal appeals court that oversees Texas and Mississippi, actually, said, well, all we're doing is rational basis here. And we don't need to look at the evidence about whether these laws actually protect women's health because the legislature said that it did. And that's good enough for us. We're not going to look into the box to evaluate that evidence ourselves. So that's one of the um, interesting and strange splits here. Why not? Why wouldn't they look at the evidence? (laughs) Right. I mean, I have to say, like, I'll tell you the argument. I I find it uh, hard to swallow. But the idea is that it's the legislature's job to determine health benefits and health problems. And if the legislature thought it was these completely trumped up um, medical experts were were believable and plausible and saying things that made sense, well, that's up to the legislature, especially because we're just talking about a rational basis test here. So anything the legislature wants to do in the name of public health is good enough. And the Fifth Circuit doesn't... That does make... make. So the argument is that the legislature is closer to the actual people and understands better than judges do. I mean, I can see a a reason... Would you explain... Just a little unpack for dummies like me. The um, so the the trumped up medical experts were saying, were saying what exactly, and what is the rational basis test? There are a small group of kind of rotating experts who have been willing to testify that abortion is very unsafe, that it's of important benefit to have doctors have admitting privileges, and that abortion clinics very much should be staffed like and outfitted like surgical centers. And all of that is necessary to protect women's health. And they don't have any credible research to stand on. And the kind of uh, linchpin of this small group is the man named Vincent Rue, who has a PhD in home economics, and in the early 80s came up with the idea of what was called post-abortion syndrome 
this notion that abortion had terrible mental health effects for women. He, his work has been debunked so much so that a few of the trial court judges in this recent wave of challenges and cases about these laws kind of rose up and said, what's this guy doing? And so the states generally kept him out of the courtroom, but they've paid him a lot of money for five states. And so and then someone did a Freedom of Information Act request. And you can see Vincent Rue sending emails to the experts who did testify, um, giving them talking points, helping them figure out what to say. It's this small group of very anti-abortion doctors. And I mean, Vincent Rue isn't a doctor, but, you know, kind of so-called experts who are giving the legislature. Um, I, I mean, I, I can't even really call it cover, but that's the that's what the legislature is drawing on here. And so I guess I would ask back to you, it is true that the legislature is closer to the people. But when we're talking about a question of scientific evidence and scientific research, does it really make sense for courts to say, okay, legislature, we're just going to, um, you, you make the call. We're just, we're not going to evaluate this ourselves. Like, what's the point of having a trial or a hearing if that's not what courts do? This is a totally separate point. I, this, I just, it just popped into my head and I need to get it out because you're my resident legal scholar, Emily, which is mm-hmm. you cited uh, Richard Posner, who is gone, who is like one of the great heroes of the American left these days, and it, isn't it a <laughs> kind of a fascinating that law and economics, the movement of which he is a part, right? Isn't that right. yeah? Is used to be perceived as an extremely conservative movement because it was high. It was a, applying this hyper rationality and analysis to legal questions and sort of this these kind of cost benefit questions, and it's become very liberal because conservatives have become so anti evidence about so many subjects. It's weird. I guess I would say a little differently that law and economics, when Judge Posner was really um, a proponent of it in the 80s, it was conservative because it was about primarily evaluating antitrust laws in a way that was pro-business. Now, you could also say that it was pro-business in a hyper-rational good way, but that was the outcome. I think since then, what's happened is that you're right. There, it, there are particular areas of law in which it has turned out that the evidence is on the side of the liberal position. And Judge Posner has a similar take on gay marriage, looking at the evidence. So, Yes, if you are primarily an evidence-based kind of pragmatist jurist, then it turns out that on gay marriage and abortion and voter ID, uh, among other examples, the position you end up with is a liberal one. And Judge Posner would just say that he is, yeah, applying the evidence and, and taking a kind of common sense approach to judging. That's how he talks about it. I guess in, in uh, responding to your last point, I think I guess the point would be if you were defending the legislature, you would argue that the legislature is the one that has the closest touch or is in closest touch with whatever the community standard is for what is healthy or what's a healthy risk to take. And so and that fluctuates based on whatever the good is or not good. That's the ultimate activity. What seems to me hard for the legislature to adjudicate is the obstacle test. Right. The 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 obstacles, whether it's an obstacle or not, is not a matter of health or community standards, I would think. That's like that's just whether it's hard for them to get this service or not. And that seems to me. Well, to but be it's the also thing. I mean, this is a classic federalist case where it's the, the, the Supreme Court, the national uh, the national government and the embodied by the Supreme Court has said there is this fundamental right to this and the local government. I mean, in these states, I think if the, if it were allowed, these state legislatures would ban all, ban abortion, all abortion. So <laughs> And they wouldn't go through this pretext this of pretense, banning it right, in the they, name right, of right. protecting women's yeah. health. They would say the unborn child were preventing murder. Yes. And yet, because that route has been somewhat largely cut off to them, instead, they're going down this other route. Right. And there have right. been a couple of, you know, state government officials who, like the, the, I think, lieutenant governor in Texas tweeted out a map of all the closed down abortion clinics in Texas saying, hey, this is why we passed this law. And then someone pointed out to him that he was not supposed that was yeah, not that it was supposed to be about point. health. Yeah. Right. So then right. he like, you know, put out a different tweet with a different message. But you can see in here that there is this ruse, this pretext going on. And so I guess that's my problem with abiding by the legislative well, um, adoption of facts. It's, I, I don't think it's. But couldn't you just go around that and just judge it on whether it's an obstacle? Just and judging it on those grounds, you don't have to buy into whether you don't have to buy in for the rationale well, for why to they did it. Some well. obstacles, the question of what is an undue burden, but that so that's circuit, a, but that's a different question than whether the procedure itself is is harmful. I mean, isn't that just a, a matter of like how long it takes you to get to go do this thing and how 
how hard that is well, for people to do. But that's but the point is they never define. It's not undefined. No, I know, but that well, seems to me to be more in the in the purview of the judges judge. as yeah. opposed to the health question, which feels closer to me to the legislature. Well, you could certainly imagine a legal analysis that said we're not going to evaluate uh, whether there are real health benefits here or not. We're just going to look at how much of an obstacle this poses. And this is actually what the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals essentially did. Then the Fifth Circuit set aside the notion that undue burden changed the standard from the very low bar of rational basis and said, okay, well, yeah, 500 miles, but they can go to New Mexico. So that's fine. They'll be fine. And 17% of women are, I think, more than 200 or more than 180 miles from a clinic. That's not a large fraction. So we're still in um, less than substantial obstacle territory. You never you know, defi- look, I, <laughs> it's just not convincing. Define for rational basis for me, because I think I missed the definition of that. Rational basis is just like the lowest legal threshold for a state being allowed to pass a law. Essentially, it's is there any rational basis by which the legislature could do this? Emily, I want to close with with one question, although this would I would love to talk about this subject for a long time. Uh, One of the interesting points you just hit on is the idea that women in West Texas, that essentially that these courts are saying, oh, we're going to outsource the abortion rights of the women in West Texas to another state, New Mexico. And if Mississippi shuts down all of its clinics, Mississippi, the entire state of Mississippi would effectively be doing the same thing. The idea would be, oh, any woman in Mississippi can go to these other states nearby, which do have an abortion clinic or two somewhere that they can get to. Shouldn't federalists who, you know, states rights people be alarmed at this notion? Isn't 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 abortion something that that if you if you say this is somehow a decision of the states, although the states are bound by some national principle that each state must somehow have to provide this service? I mean, sure, if they were being 100% consistent. But the people who are the most um, avidly anti-abortion aren't necessarily the same people who are the most avid about states' rights. I know those are both conservative positions, but it doesn't mean that like the Venn diagram is a perfect one. Yeah. So we and might end up with a state with no abortion clinics? The Mississippi. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Mississippi and uh, South Dakota have been in a race for this honor, as they see it, for years. And they each have one clinic left. And yeah, they're, I mean, look, I, I hold out a lot of um, faith in Justice Kennedy that he is not actually going to say that these laws are constitutional. It would just go so far away from Casey. I don't know how he could justify it to himself. That said, it's not inconceivable that I could be completely wrong about that. And if that happens, it's not going to just be South Dakota and Mississippi. There are going to be no abortion clinics in other states as well. All right. Let's hear from our second sponsor. For the past 40 years, MSNBC's Chris Matthews has lived and breathed American politics. From serving as President Carter's speechwriter to being a top advisor to Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill, Matthews knows how Washington works from the inside out. That's why he doesn't back down. He asks tough questions and he gets to the heart of today's issues nonstop on Hardball. Weeknights at 7 Eastern, only on MSNBC. Hamilton on Broadway is a sensation, the likes of which American theater has not seen in years. The hip hop musical about a lesser known founding father is so popular that if you went to try to go buy tickets now, you would have to get tickets for next fall. Those tickets would cost $400 or more per seat. And they would probably be on a Wednesday afternoon. Producers of the show were kind enough to let us, uh, let the three of us come and see it in the past few weeks. And we want to talk about it in the context of modern politics. And I think, like, if we can just begin, everyone, when they talk about Hamilton, there is this sort of requisite kind of 30 seconds of just being like, I can't believe how good it is. It is a work of genius. It is, like, different than anything you will see I have ever seen ever experienced. I don't even like theater. And it was transporting, I assume, based on my conversations with you, John, and you, Emily, that you felt somewhat the same way. Just, just, can we get that part? Can we get that out of the way? Can we get that part of that away? Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, yes, we can get that out of the way. But then I'd also like to see, and maybe this is the point of this segment, uh, to explore why it is that way. Um, And so I guess that's what we'll do. But yeah, it was, I I thought, I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Everybody's talking about this. I was incredibly skeptical. And by the end of it, I was basically almost in, in tears at the end of it. Yeah. Almost. I walked out of the Well, I was sitting weekend. next to Plots. I didn't want to totally, like, turn <laughs> yeah. into You're a mess. You're just lucky you guys got to go on a different day than me. I would have gotten you all damp. 
All right. So to describe it, it is uh, it's a musical. It's a largely hip hop musical. They're not exclusively hip hop musical. There are lots of musical genres uh, thrown into it, um, which is part of its appeal. I mean, one one element of it is that it is weaving hip hop into traditional forms of musical theater. That's what the theater people say. But it's uh, it is wrapped and sung wrapped and extremely actively danced. And it tells the story of Alexander Hamilton as he rises from a young immigrant sort of nobody and becomes a, a hero of the son revolution. of a Scotsman and a whore son for of, what it's son worth. of a whore um, and a, a brilliant soldier, a, a, a lawyer. He's fearless. He's loving. He's he's got a great sense of fun. He is uh, wants to fight. And then in the second half, it, it looks at Hamilton's life after the revolution as he becomes the secretary of the treasury. He becomes a great advocate for the nation and building it as a, a great the United States is a great nation rather as a, than as a collection of sort of disparate states, an opponent of Thomas Jefferson, and ultimately, of course, killed uh, in a duel by his rival Aaron Burr, who is the narrator of the piece. It is so it's it's a it's an American history lesson, very densely told. Um, John, why is the form that it takes important? The form, particularly the hip hop. Well, I mean, I guess my big, the biggest takeaway on that point to me is that you have part of the one of the many threads, one of the many stories going on here is about legacy and who gets to tell your story. And so the fact that you have Aaron Burr, the man who killed Hamilton and whose story was forever changed by that fact, being forced to tell the story of Hamilton is itself one of the great things about this about this work uh, but but the largest thing is that you have a story about a dead white man and his founder friends all of whom are dead white men who created some of whom are a country holders. who created a country uh, in which Afro- people of color were completely written out of the history and it is therefore then amazing that you have a phenomenon with black and brown faces reanimating and becoming such a phenomenon and basically retelling and changing the, the way people will think about these dead white males. I mean, in, in a country that has wrestled with its original sin for its entire history, that thing itself, in terms of the large structure of the, of the musical, is just amazing. I was reading a book about uh, George Washington uh, just yesterday, and Hamilton is discussed in it. And the first thing that came into my head was Lin-Manuel, who is not, you know, and, and that is one of the wonderful ways in which this play works on the on that question of the way in which it's staged the faces and the and the kind of music that's used in this um that's for me one of the big things about why this is so clever on that yeah i mean i think even more than clever the fact that most of the actors are black and hispanic and asian makes you feel like the country's original sin it's not being washed away it's just being addressed head on and people who were completely disenfranchised by our founding vision are owning the history in this way that makes it feel like it belongs to them. We were talking a lot last week about why a lot of um, black and Hispanic college students and, and college students of all colors have been out protesting, trying to really feel more ownership of their universities. And so when I saw this play with that on my mind, I felt like this play was somehow an amazing embodiment of that impulse carried off to just perfection, Um, which isn't to say that it's easy to translate the show into the realities of American life and all its complications, but it kind of stands out there as this incredibly attractive example of people of color just like taking over the narrative. I mean, you... Go ahead, John. No, no. Go, go ahead. I was well, going to make another point about something else. I, I mean, I've, I think I will certainly think of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, for me, no longer is Thomas Jefferson. It is to be Diggs, <laughs> who is, you know, who's black, who has a huge afro, who doesn't look anything like Thomas Jefferson, but his kind of strutting, ebullient, uh, joyous, uh, jerk face performance as Jefferson is just is much more Jefferson than Jefferson could ever be to me. Um, well, and it's also t- he turns Jefferson into a buffoon, right? right. I mean, I had no, I yes, like I knew that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves and had a relationship with Sally Hemings, but I hadn't thought of him as um, in this like gentrified kind of uh, you know frills and furbelow way that David Diggs plays him. And I love the idea of changing our memory of Jefferson, even if it's completely irreverent. There are lots of 
we've uh, well, we can jump around a lot, but there are things in this play where, which I didn't realize this until listening to the soundtrack again, in the way that it's performed and all the tiny little bits of wonderfulness. So there's this scene where um, where David Diggs uh, is actually playing Lafayette, and there's some other young revolutionaries who are rapping. And they're rapping in like an 80s style, super simple, um, kind of beating on the table. And then Hamilton, who is this fresh new voice, who is in and, and fresh new voice in the context of the narrative, comes in and starts rapping in a much more modern, multi-syllabic way. And it didn't occur to me until later the way in which the form matches the narrative there. Um, and little stuff like that happens throughout the play. And where the king comes in, George III right. comes in singing sort of 60s British right. pop. Right. Um, right. It's just like everywhere you look, there's a little like gift you can unwrap that's going on. Well, and, I mean, the, the I mean, we've sort of missed one of the – we didn't miss. We just haven't noted one of the incredibly brilliant points, which is the the men who did carry out the revolution were in fact incredibly young. They were – revolutionaries they were running against a you know the conservative culture of their time although they were in some sense conservatives but we won't talk about that um and to to give them the grammar the 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 beats of rap is to is to really to you know to make it clear that oh hip-hop is this you know which represents youth and vitality and roughness and kind of high energy is to point out to us that, oh, that's in fact what our founding fathers were. They weren't stodgy white guys, although they were stodgy white guys. They were the boldest, brashest, baddest men of their era. And so it's a, it's a gift to the founding fathers to give them hip-hop. <laughs> what, what, if you, I was thinking about this. What, if you had to do a musical that was what, – what are the other – because you can't, you can't make everything a hip-hop musical. It wouldn't make sense to, I don't think, to make the Civil War hip hop musical. I mean, you could probably do it, but that it doesn't. That the Founding Fathers are a really good match because they are so young and brash, and so it form matches right. the subject. But what are the? I was thinking you could do a te, the Teddy Roosevelt. You know, you could you could reimagine the Teddy Roosevelt and the progressives <laughs> in this way, or um, the Civil Rights Movement. You could almost do you do the Civil Rights Movement as starting as an R and B musical, and then it becomes a hip hop musical. So it sort of gradually becomes a younger and younger movement. As it goes on, younger and more radical movement. You guys are not moved by this. No, I'm exercise. not moved by that so much as I am. There are other. I mean, there's also at the heart of this a story of love and betrayal, and there's a, one of the best. And I don't think this is spoiling anything because people are buying and listening to the soundtrack. But Burr and Hamilton are arch rivals, and yet they sing a duet in which they're both singing to their children, which is a great song about parents and their children but it's also a the way in which Burr and Hamilton are kind of rivals but intertwined so they share the same interests at moments and are in league with each other but then they're always kind of circling each other waiting for the final confrontation and so the way that happens in that one song there's the 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 song of um uh there must be a theatrical phrase for this when you know something's going to happen so you know Hamilton's going to die in this duel we've known that from the minute the play begins and there is this song that he sings to his to his wife where she tries to get him to come the, to bed and he says well I have an early meeting tomorrow morning and the power is him trying to him telling her these lies and we know he's going to go die the next morning and that irony that's that dramatic over, irony yeah i guess you know it is it dramatic and irony yeah. and um foreshadowing also it, it um it just gives that scene so much weight and tenderness and uh so there's this whole huge love story piece in there too emily do you is is hamilton ideological i mean some people oh, president obama loves it he's seen it a couple of times but so does Dick Cheney, apparently. So, well, so it's a question. I mean, the, the, there's some people who say, did you see the, the, what Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, tweeted after Dick Cheney saw it? He no. said, He said, uh, the, oh, Dick, uh, Dick Cheney was at uh, our show tonight, the only other vice president to shoot somebody while in office. <laughs> That's great. Um, I mean, I kind of think there is something here for everyone in the sense you can imagine Dick Cheney enjoying the relevance of this long ago piece of American history. And then I think it is ideological in the sense it is incredibly pro-immigrant. I mean, there's a great line, no immigrants, we get things done, all this emphasis on how a lot of Hamilton's energy and vitality comes from his immigrant history and childhood. And 
at this particular moment in American history where we're struggling so much with immigrants and thinking about pulling up the drawbridge, I think the show is a social commentary on that. And also, I mean, more more than that, it's a nationalist. It's about building a nation and building a national government and and rejecting the idea that these are these states means anti Jefferson. I mean, I've always thought Thomas Jefferson is one of the truly great villains of American history. And I'm so glad to see him depicted as such in this in this taken down um why do you think he's such a villain because i think his his portrait of a his his desire to create a kind of rural agrarian state-driven nation and to resist the idea of national power and of the power of cities in particular but damaged the country and it like it led us it kept us i think it probably kept slavery going for years longer than it would have and it created this idea this federalist idea where states have extraordinary power in our national government that they shouldn't that we are a weaker nation because their states have too much power in my think of what they were coming out of and why they why why there was an argument for that no i understand there was an argument for it but i just think he was wrong like wrong is different than new york wrong is different than being a villain well it was a villain. One suggests he knows that it's well, going to have that negative outcome. Well, no, no, almost nobody makes a makes a decision acting villainously. There are a few people who say, villains I'm acting do. Vi-. No, they villains don't even villains think they're acting well. They think they're acting in the best interests of the people of some group of people they're representing. No, the villains they, think they're acting in their own self interest, and people no, be damned. Uh, uh-uh, uh, I don't think that's true. I think if you if you plumbed in the depths of a, of a Hitler or Stalin or Putin, that you would see a tremendous amount of self-justification and acting for a, a sense of a common good that they, that happens to be seriously diluted and wrong, but not right, but people are not generally people not are not generally setting out to do villainy in the world. They believe it's they're the doing good. It's the difference between psych, being a psychopath and having no, you know, being completely cynical and manipulating people and having a self-righteous narrative you tell yourself which has terrible effects and is often diluted but which you feel very passionate. I would think you of all people, John, you're somebody who's ex- incredibly sympathetic to people telling their own stories and the complexity of people's ideas and like to recognize that people can be yeah, self-justifying but that's, but I, that's, but I don't and believe they're acting in the common good and be terribly wrong. Sure. Sure, sure, and, and, right. and but that's why I don't call the world. Them, right. That's why I don't call them villains. I call them something else. Then you reserve the word for the proper thing that it is, which is a person who operates, you know, either for their self-interest. Yeah, exactly. Blackheartedly. If you just call everybody a villain, then the word loses all meaning. Because then, what do you call the person who's just killing people because they get off on it? I mean, they're villains too, right? They're psychopaths, so, but now, sociopaths. I mean, yeah, but but villain is much more powerful than sociopath. As a word. Anyway. That's an interesting debate. I am going to bring up one more related issue about Hamilton, which is the depiction of women in it. So the really the only female characters are the Schuyler sisters, Eliza Schuyler, who marries Alexander Hamilton and her older sister, Angelica, who does not marry Hamilton because she's supposed to make a marriage with a wealthy man and kind of save her family that way, but who sends is involved in this uh, quite affectionate, bordering on passionate correspondence with Hamilton. I thought it was just such an interesting depiction of a relationship between two sisters and then also this idea that you could have this um, man who was basically in a kind of love triangle with these two sisters. Yeah. Plus one. Although I thought they were the weakest characters. I mean, I thought they were really underwritten, generally. I thought Angelica was more powerful than, than Eliza. I um, the thing about Angelica that didn't quite work for me was she's having this passionate connection to Hamilton, which is so passionate that she writes an entire letter and swoons over what may or may not be a misplaced comma when he writes, my dearest <laughs> Angelica, when he puts the comma after dearest, um, which is a wonderful uh, song and a wonderful capturing of a moment. We've all probably been in that situation where in courtship you like anticipate or intuit something and then you're not sure whether that's really what it is but you're hopeful and it captures all that stuff but then she's like devoted to her sister so i I understand there's complexity in her being both attracted to her sister's husband but then completely casts aside hamilton in favor of her sister but i i don't know that didn't quite uh, the shift is abrupt although i really liked her ending up on her sister's side i agree with you that there's a it's one moment in the play that doesn't feel like it's quite earned. It just kind of happens all of a sudden. All right. 
let us leave Hamilton uh, with the strongest urging recommendation. You might want to mortgage your children, sell your dog, sell whatever your dog? it takes. You think that's going to really pay it's a, for the price it's, of a ticket? I don't know. Well, if it's like if it's a pure if it's a purebred dog of some sort of you know purebred Sharpay, um, uh, it might it might pay for half a ticket to go see it. It's it's just yeah. Were you about to say that? No, I was just going to say the the uh, in, we, you you mentioned at the beginning the contemporary um, connections to the play the the song in the room where it happens, which is a song that Aaron Burr sings when he's trying to be there when Jefferson and Hamilton carve up the arrangement for the country, and he's not in the room and he's furious about it, and and Burr is presented as this character who from the very beginning who doesn't want anybody to know too much what his positions are be- so that he can play both sides of the uh, of of the issue that song is such a great uh, display of something we see today which is just the ambition to be in the mix kind of regardless now we're more ideological mm-hmm. now but it is a, it was a great capturing of why a lot of people come to Washington which is just to be in the room where it happens at kind of who cares what's happening I just want to be in the room <laughs> No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. No one really knows how the game is played, the art of the trade, how the sausage gets made. We just assume that it happens. But no one else is in the room where it happened. Let's hear from our last sponsor today, which is Credit Karma. What is the most important number in your life? It is not your age, it's not your IQ, it's not even the date you're going to go see Hamilton. This is a number that has a huge impact on your finances, what you might pay for credit card interest, for home and auto loans, and student debt. It is, of course, your credit score. And Credit Karma offers a great way to find out your credit score for free. Everything on their site is free. And to get a whole bunch of other information about your finances, about what affects your credit score, and to do it with a enormous ease on their app. What I liked, I use the Credit Karma app. It is extremely easy to use and it's very gratifying. It's like a quick rabbit hole down sort of an explanation of what it is that composes your credit score, why your credit score is the way it is, what is affecting it, facts like, oh, are you using too much of your credit limit? That might push your score down. It's a very, very easy to use service and it's free and it's fast and it's extremely gratifying. So you do not have to pay for your credit score. With Credit Karma, you can see your credit score right now absolutely free. Just text GABFEST to 89800 to download the free Credit Karma app and get started. It's really quick, really easy. You will also get free tips and suggestions to help you manage your credit, free credit monitoring, and free alerts when your score changes. So don't let today end without seeing your credit score. Thanks to Credit Karma, you'll get it for free. Text GABFEST to 89800 to download the free app so you can see what may be the most important number in your life. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're listening to the Hamilton soundtrack, boozing. John Dickerson, you're you're healing your sore throat, your sexy sore throat (laughs) with a drink. What are you going to be chattering to Mrs. D about? Um, well, I was. It's a story in the Atlantic by David Graham about um, the Lincoln Douglas debates. The Lincoln Douglas debates are held up as the um, the kind of great example of the of the kind of debates we should have between lawmakers. They were not for the presidency; it was for the Senate seat in Illinois. Um, but they are routinely referred to as the great um, example of debates. But what Graham points out is that at the time, everybody thought they were a total disaster and that they were a, they were terrible for democracy. The Washington Union wrote, the whole country is disgusted with the scene now exhibited in the state of Illinois. The Cincinnati commercial scolded, the members of the coming legislature of Illinois will be just as free to exercise their own will in the choice of senator as if neither Mr. Douglas nor Mr. Lincoln had peregrinated the state from lake to river wrangling over what they are pleased to consider the great national issues. Uh, it's just that sort of That's just funny. amused me at the time. But um, you can also get the audiobook of the um, Lincoln-Douglas debates, which I have listened to. And uh, uh, the one I listened to, Richard Dreyfus, um, is one of the – I can't remember which of the two he is, but he is one of the voices. And it's uh, it's kind of fun to listen to. But what I had, what struck me in listening to them was that Lincoln was a total whiny boy. Mm-hmm. He kept jumping in and interrupting and does not sound – 
in the telling or in the rendition, like a, a man who would go on to be arguably our greatest president ever and who had a cool and calm demeanor. He he sounds a little a little like a like a third tier candidate in a presidential campaign trying to like here's, wave his arms to get called on in a debate. Rick Santoriming it up. Is uh here's a question though. I, I never even thought about this. They were debating and yet in front of people who had no say, say in the in the in final, the, in outcome. final outcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the reason I like the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and this is what all debates should be, is that it's an actual debate. It's a discussion. Lincoln-Douglas was great because they would, you know, tell they one would make a bunch of cracks about the other, and then the other would come back and th- through the their wit and cleverness respond as, as to the arguments, but also to the insults. Um, so it was pretty. Did they darn have a moderator, John? I think they just had a timekeeper. So that's that's all they had. I mean, there was nobody there was, posing questions. No, uh, there's no. They posed Century Dickerson there. They posed questions to each other. Um, right. Emily, what's your chatter? Listeners, know that I'm doing my chatter now because Emily <laughs> just tried to do a chatter. She's already done. No, don't out me. I I x that. But I'm actually going to do a chatter almost that I've already done too. So we talked on Slate Plus last week. You were not here, John, for this, I guess. But uh, about Iran and France and whether it was. Who was right in the spat between Iran and France about uh, France inviting Iran to dinner, the Iranian leaders to dinner, and the Iranian leaders insisting there be halal meat and no wine, and France saying, forget it, let's have breakfast instead, and then ultimately they had no meal at all. And so we talked about it last week, and I think Emily, <laughs> Jamel, uh, and I all sort of took the side of Iran, like, well, you know, you're being hospitable. So I got a lot of... Uh, stick for that first from my wife not she hadn't listened to the segment I just said oh we talked about this today and she proceeded to unspool the argument I'm about to unspool and then actually at the Superfest uh, the party after the Superfest an Australian guy who works at HuffPo whose name I didn't catch but hello smart Australian guy who works at HuffPo also unspooled this argument which is basically saying we overprivilege religious belief in this situation we say the Iranians have this religious belief about what they should and shouldn't be in the presence in and that that is uh, paramount. It trumps everything. But the French idea about a good life and how to lead a good life and their values around it, which include the idea that meals are accompanied by good wine and that that is that that is a fundamental value in the same for the French in the same way that not drinking wine personally for uh, perhaps an Iranian Muslim is a fundamental value for them. And to say that one is greater than the other is a mistake to say that the religious value oversteps the the uh, that cultural secular value is is wrong, and that because neither these are not um, neither of these are actual moral cases, and that neither of them can make the case that they are uh, damaging human beings or harming human beings by the choice they're making. Uh, it is it's it's wrong to immediately privilege one over the other. So, I disagree. I think it's okay to accord more to give priority to religious beliefs because they come from a different place. Don't, they have I, why? Why? What, what, what if why? people who don't have religious beliefs, but they have other just deeply, profoundly held beliefs? We protect, we protect people but against wh- discrimination on why, the basis of religion. Is, I know, why? But, but if, you, if you're not a religious, but that means if you don't have religious beliefs, what are the things, the things that you hold to, that you claim as fundamental to you, how are you right, supposed to give them privilege? Precept. Well, you don't, I, have, you don't have to give them equal privilege. You can give them privilege. But you don't, and this is a case Wait, where why do you not give? Why shouldn't you give them equal? Well, I'm to saying, religious do you think that the French, that French secularists, believe as strongly in having a glass of wine as the Islamists do in their beliefs? Yes, actually, really? that's yeah, that's where that's huh. what I think. I I think you think when someone dies in the French tradition, they think we must have a glass have of wine. Have you ever heard the, the the an amazing story about um, Mitterrand's um, last meal? Last meal, yeah. which yeah. I'm sure we've talked about, but that Mitterrand dying, there's this man with his, you know, his several mistresses, his separate family, a man who lived a good glorious secular life. As he's dying, he arranges this last feast for himself. I get but and and it, you know finishes eating, he eats his second ortolan, this little bird dipped in armagnac and roasted, stuffs it into his mouth. You hide your face as you eat an ortolan. Eats his second ortolan, which is it's illegal to eat ortolan because they're they've been decimated because people have been eating them. And eats it, 
goes into coma, coma never says another word. Like for, I, it, it's hard for me to say that that, that act of eating and that meal isn't as sacred right. to, to Mitterrand as, as a religious uh, My argument isn't bit. about strength of feeling. I think it's about how people are persecuted on the basis of their religious beliefs. And so one way you protect against that and honor that space is by making sure that you're respectful of it in a situation like the one... But people the, are being persecuted for their non-religious beliefs now because they're... They're, I don't. Th- I don't think. I. I just that people are persecuted for all kinds of things, and people with religious beliefs are persecuting people without religious beliefs in all kinds of ways. In but, Iran, for example, if you don't have religious beliefs, if you're not a practicing Muslim, you're being persecuted for your non-religious practice. So I just don't accept that. So I'm completely turned hmm, on myself. But my if you, that's um, interesting because that's a recent phenomenon. The idea that it's even more just as dangerous to be an atheist. We didn't really used to have atheists in any number. I have to think about that. But isn't the point here when you're with when you're trying to reach an accommodation with somebody else that you recognize what it means for them, regardless of what you may think, that you recognize the power that has for them, and then therefore. Because you're trying to be like yeah. nice to them. Well, I think there's a separate argument which would lead you in this particular case, which is I'm the host and you're the guest, and therefore as a host, it's incumbent on me as a host to be respect more respectful to you than to myself because I'm but that's hosting your you. But that's a, of whether but that your is, objection that would, is religious. Yeah, that is not. A no, no. But I'm I'm talking about. Well, in this case though, it is. I mean, I'm we're trying. Well, it doesn't matter. But we're talking about a um, trying to reach an accommodation with another person, right? And so you're in that. Position you you if you're trying to reach an accommodation with somebody you don't do something that's offensive to them. I'm just I'm just saying as right, a negotiating so, thing. Yeah, but so each of them sees the other. As, so so for Iran to say you can't serve wine is to the French to if you privilege this French belief is as as insulting as the as the French saying we are going to serve wine. You don't have to drink it, but we're going right. to serve it. I mean, they each you can. I just want to I just want to elevate this French I'm, belief to this to the same level on a platform. Yeah, they cite. All the way. All right. Anyway, that was just a chatter. Good. Thanks for chattering with me, guys. This you is just too complicated. My chatter, which is okay with me. Oh, we skipped Emily's chatter. Before, well, let's I go back to Emily's chatter. Forfeited my chatter. Emily, what's your chatter? My chatter is about a story called "The Doomsday Scam" by C.J. Shivers. That's running in the New York Times Magazine this weekend. It's this crazy hunt for something called red mercury, which is like the holy grail of super dangerous weapons. An urban legend doesn't seem like such a thing really exists in a way that explodes. And yet, you know, the bad guys are still really busy looking for it. So this is just a great yarn that's both about the power of... Um, what is red mercury? That's a terrifying name. Even among name. hardened terrorists. I mean, I, I don't know what they think it is. It's it's a, a sort of prophesied... It's supposed to have the power of a, nucle- a small nuclear bomb, basically. So it's super, super expensive, and people buy and sell it, and yet it doesn't. There doesn't seem to be anything that has the properties that this. But um, is it supposed legendary. to be mercury? Is it is no, it like it, a legendary well, thing, or it's an actual scientific? It's thing? It's a legendary thing, oh. but it it no, continues okay. to be believed in, even good. though it doesn't seem to actually work the Let way. Let the terrorists hunt for it. That's a good chatter. Yeah. Uh, okay, our intern is El Biscard Church. It's our first week. Welcome, Al. Our producer today is Jason DeLeon. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Gaffest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash Gabfest. It has links to what we talked about. And you can still um, tweet Conundra to us. Hashtag uh, HeyGabfest. And our that Twitter feed is at SlateGabfest. Our email address is Gabfest at Slate.com. You can also send us conundrums there. Please subscribe to the GabFest in iTunes. Get us up in the iTunes ranking. I noticed we were 100, which is a good number, but we should be higher than 100. Commenting, subscribing, rating really help us rise in the ranking. For Emily and John, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. We're going to tape early on Thanksgiving. I don't know if the show will be up early, but we're going to tape early. So hopefully it'll be up early too. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. 18- plus.